Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring a special section on the 57th New York Film Festival, including Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, Noah Baumbach's Merit Story, and Cornelio Poromboyo's The Whistlers. Support independent, non-profit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. Think of it as a festival within the festival. Every year, the annual Projections program brings the latest and greatest of experimental film to the New York Film Festival. Projections is a crucial and consistently popular snapshot of the boundary-pushing part of cinema that is embedded in the DNA of the New York Film Festival, by way of co-founder Amos Vogel. To navigate this year's rich offerings, I brought together two leading critics in the field, Ed Holter, a critic in residence at Bard, and film comic contributing editor Nellie Killian, who teaches at Pratt. The conversation starts with an essential look at today's experimental scene, generally, before spotlighting favorite films from this year's projections. Tune in for more film comment fun at the New York Film Festival with our filmmakers chat on Saturday, October 5th, and our critics wrap up on Wednesday, October 9th both free events at Film at Lincoln Center. Let's go to our conversation. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. Uh, my name's Nick Rapold. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. And we've been doing a series of podcasts for the New York Film Festival. Uh, so far, we've just done one on highlights from the main slate and elsewhere. But we're doing now a dedicated one on the projection slate. Uh, we did one last year, uh, and it was so went so well that we just had to do it again. But at any rate, I'm very pleased to be joined by... Uh, Nellie Killian, uh, contributing editor to Film Comment and uh, programmer. And? Uh, Ed Halter, uh, co-director of Light Industry and um, critic in residence at Bard College. Um, Thank you both for taking the time for this. Um, I guess we could start just by maybe talking a bit, since you're both programmers as well, you know, what what uh, if you want to do a pocket history of what projections and uh, you know has been it might be interesting yeah well i was trying to think what year did projections start it was um what year did views end it views from the avant-garde 15 maybe 14 or 15 yeah i mean we were actually talking about this beforehand about how there's just this long engagement with experimental cinema with the new york film festival that has gone in many different ways over the decades and Projections is the current sidebar at the festival, and the previous one was uh, Views from the Avant-Garde, which began in the 1990s. And then we were also even talking about how in the mid-60s, they did this in the fourth film festival, there was a big sidebar on, quote, independent cinema. But at that time, that was including everyone from Stan Vanderbeek to Albert Mazels. And you also, I mean, one of the founders of the festival is Amos Vogel. Yes. So it's kind of from the beginning it's in the dna sort of exactly but there's always been this contention because it has such because the festival has such a broad audience of how to fit uh experimental work in has been over the years you know they've tried different things and and the sidebars have taken different approaches too um which i think at least uh it's interesting the ways in which it follows larger trends um we were talking about how many things in um, this year's lineup are sort of adjacent to documentary, which seems like something that those worlds, the documentary world and the experimental film world seem to have gotten closer in certain quarters in the last uh, maybe 
five or ten years? Yeah, I mean, Nelly and I started talking about this actually because I'd gone to Toronto and and gone to the Wavelengths program, which is very similar to Projections, or kind of parallel program. But I happened to have not gone to Toronto for ten years, so I had this kind of interesting perspective where I was kind of really thinking about what had changed in those ten years. And one of those things was, yeah, documentary. I feel like ten years ago, it was before. Uh, you know, I would say that the sensory ethnography lab started getting a lot of attention probably around 14, 2014. Mm. And that entree, that, that attention for films like Leviathan really helped bring, you know, documentary and experimental closer together, I would say, a lot in a lot of programming venues. But prior to that, I feel like there was a bit of a stronger, stronger, stronger division between the two. And, and it was, you didn't see as much overlap as you see now. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's like a lot of cross-pollination among yeah. certain more adventurous documentary film programmers and also, um, uh, you know, looking for different types of work that's engaging with reality, I guess. And mm -hmm. then on the sort of whatever you want to call it, avant-garde, uh, you know, experimental side, I think you have people who are looking not to um, have such a codified world of uh, work that they're uh, limiting themselves to what could be considered experimental. Yeah, mm. You're kind of, I think that uh, by its very nature, anyone who's working in experimental film programming and also people who are working in that medium are always kind of trying to not, are trying to look outside yeah. uh, whatever mm. their sort of immediate <clears throat> frame of reference is. Yeah, and I think the, inter I mean, maybe what's one thing that's different about experimental programming that I think maybe is different from other kinds of programming is that there's, there's always been a real, real focus on the history of it, maybe because the archival impulse has so, been so big in the last 20 years. So I feel like whenever these shifts happen, they're happening both on the historical register and on the contemporary register. So, you know, I feel like a few years ago, there were these conversations about wanting to expand what was seen as the experimental history. Um, to things like Robert Gardner or, you know, people who had been, or uh, even th people like Timothy Ash or people who had, really existed in a, in a more solidly documentary uh, kind of context and claiming them and saying, well, no, this is actually speaking with the work of Mikus and Brackage and Darren, et cetera, that, that it has kind of both historical continuities and aesthetic, you know, things that would be uh, of interest to look at. And so now I think we've gotten to the point where now you've got people's whole careers come up where they've kind of done both. Like someone like Luke Fowler has emerged mm -hmm. completely in both registers simultaneously, plus the art world at the same time, mm -hmm. you know, and his work can be viewed all, all in all those registers pretty fruitfully. Yeah. And he's someone who, at least I think in the States or maybe North America, I don't think of showing in documentary context still, yeah. uh, which I think also speaks to the fact that sometimes it is a bit of a self-sort, that there are filmmakers who are more of one community or another. And I think that it makes it makes the sort of trying to make any sort of uh, top-down distinction more difficult when yeah. you have filmmakers who are like, I quorum with this group, even though maybe aesthetically they're closer to another. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe that's the biggest difference in doing something that would be called an experimental sidebar, which a lot of festivals have, is that it's not really the same category as something like documentary or narrative. Like it's not a definition. It's more usually negative. It's like, well, it doesn't quite fit in somewhere. It's an experimental. So it's not really a positive definition towards something anymore. I feel like. I don't know if that's true though. Like, well, I mean, I think if you look at something like the uh, Toronto Film Festival, 
I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but 10 years ago, it I believe it was much smaller than it is now. Wavelengths? Wavelengths, yes. The uh, Possibly, yeah. Uh, it seemed it seemed to me that that program sort of expanded in this way in again the last maybe 10, 15 years. I don't quite know the history to have um, not just be focused on these sort of short form, non-commercial, avant-garde films, whatever you want to call them, to have this sort of variety of features that really ran the gambit from things that are. Um, you know, completely abstract or non-narrative to something like Pedro Costa, who yeah. could easily mm-hmm. be in, you know, any sort of master section um, as well. Yeah, and Costa is someone that in Wavelengths this year, his new film, Vitorina Varela, is in Wavelengths. Here, it's in the main slate. And he's someone that it views, I th- views and projections has kicked around main slate versus experimental uh, but, over the years. But I think yeah. in, in the context of wavelengths, I mean, and maybe this is my bias, but I do think people look to that sidebar to be like, well, these are the most sort of uh, uh, adventurous or engaging or intellectual, mm-hmm. whatever you want to say, uh, films in the festival. Right. <laughs> it it kind of carries a, a certain distinction. Yeah. Um, and, and again, you have people in that section who are doing work on a level that, you know, they're playing every film festival. They're not ghettoized in any way, um, especially maybe in European festivals or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, how, how is this kind of playing out, particularly with this, this year's uh, slate in, in projections? Uh? Well, I think the big, the big thing that I think is this year seems to mark and, mm-hmm. uh, is that with the exception of the, you know, Pat O'Neill, the Saga series showing, uh, traditionally this sidebar for many years, what also views really had a lot of kind of big names, uh, Eminence Gris from who are recognized as part of the kind of avant-garde tradition, you know? So like for years you would kind of expect to go and there'd be somebody kind of speaking ex cathedra, you know, mm-hmm. there's like, there's Dorsky, Nathaniel Dorsky or Jonas right. Mekis, or, you know, we can name a million people this year. Interestingly, there's none of that. It was also a pretty rough year exactly. on the uh, sort of this community. There was a number of lo- huge losses. A lot of them, yeah. Um, Jonathan Schwartz has a program in the film festival, but Barbara Hammer has mm-hmm. been memorialized many times over in New York at this point, as is Jonas Meekus. And Jonas, and mm-hmm. Phil Solomon, Phil even. Solomon. Um, um, Robert Todd is another person Robert that I think might have been within the last... Robert Frank. Robert Frank. I mean, oh, yeah. this year has just been real bad, I mean, in terms yeah. of people passing away both young and old actually it's just a strange kind of thing but but i think that there's been a shift away from this gradually in these sidebars from this i would put it this way it's i I just think it's like the it's a twinned thing that there is like an element in which a lot of these filmmakers have gotten older um but then also i feel like the program has gotten so much younger Right. But I also think the program has maybe shifted. I think the big shift from views to projections was a shift from a kind of community to a category. And I don't think that those are Hmm. totally, I don't think it's 100% shift one way or the other, but I think in general views, because the programmers were peers of many of the filmmakers, there was a stronger sense of like, you are at a community and here are the, you know, people of that community. Um, and you know, uh, Whereas projections had a slight shift where it's now more like a category of experimental. And within that category, you can put the programmers could put what they feel could be there regardless of its kind of provenance. Mm. Um, And I feel like that's a general shift that's happened with experimental programming as such. You know, the earliest people I would think that started doing that to my mind was like 
certain programmers at Rotterdam and Cinema Texas in the early O's, where they were calling them, they were being positioned as experimental, but it wasn't the kind of canonical experimental mm -hmm. that most of us at that time would have known or been taught. And there was a big opening up of what that meant in the 21st century. Yeah. And I think, I mean, New York has, I think, a sort of different place in it too than something like Rotterdam or Cinema Texas, where what Views was doing in particular, um, it's not as if there weren't other places in the city yes. that were uh, filling in those gaps. This idea that like, uh, you know, New York, it wasn't that New York was only being presented with one sort of view of the, the avant-garde. Avant yeah. um, <laughs> but um, there was, you know, even Film Society, uh, now Film at Lincoln Center, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, had, a, <laughs> had a video festival that was separate yes. from yes. Oh, right. uh, views from the avant-garde. And it was important. It was an important And that was festival, a distinction. Yeah. Yes. That nothing video would be for many years in. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, but it's the true. They have these two. Festival. Yeah, it was yeah. video. There was a video festival and a film festival. Right. And then the video festival ended. Views expanded basically and included some of those artists. And mm -hmm. then. By the time projection, you know, projections brought in a new crew, and so they kind of cleaned house a bit and made a new, uh, a new kind of program. But I think that that general trend has been going on, like I said. Mm -hmm. uh, but this year was the first year you, re I feel like, and it wasn't just me talking to people. You really noticed the lack of that elder statesman kind mm -hmm. of person. Um, I mean, Dorsky is in town this week, I think, speaking at NYU. Which so again, you get back to the New York exactly. thing. Exactly, Dorsky, I believe, is showing a bunch of new work at MoMA or something in the next exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. So it may be just a bunch yeah. of coincidences why there's nobody here. However, I don't think it's just that. I think it's also statistically there just aren't enough people. You know, the, the yeah. older guard is maybe I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I there, same thing at wavelengths. It was it was the same way. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, a lot of people are still around. No, absolutely. <laughs> but I'm saying no, but I'm saying yeah. so. No, no, there are many alive people actually <laughs> making films. Yeah. But it is interesting that these two major showcases, yeah. neither yeah. one actually had one of those things that usually was a, a kind of core right. presentation as part of them. Yeah. Well, who, who are some of the, uh, maybe we could talk about some of the yeah. younger the younger festival, generation yes. of, of, of filmmakers. Uh, what, what were some films that are, were, stood out to you that you, know, you really, really liked in, in this edition? Um, I really loved Okosua Adama. Awusu's uh, Pellerino, They Don't Care About Us. Uh, it's the second film I've seen by her. And this one, um, again, I mean, getting back to the ways in which I think that uh, the tradition is still strong in a, a lot of ways, it does in some ways feel like a travel log, um, uh, it, you know, in a tradition that like, you know, goes back a long way in um, avant-garde filmmaking, uh, focusing on uh, an area of uh, Salvador in Bahia, Brazil, that was the sort of epicenter of um, the slave trade with, I believe, the big, uh, the big square even being like, I think, an open-air slave market and has become a epicenter of Afro-Brazilian culture that now is under threat of um, gentrification and, you know, all the ways that communities sort of get decimated uh, by all of these outside factors. And um, she opens it with this correspondence um, that W.E.B. DeBose uh, uh, wrote to uh, the Brazilian consulate asking, um, he had heard that uh, they were blocking black Americans from entering Brazil, blocking them at the border. And uh, he wrote asking like, well, 
you know, sort of what definitions are you working with here of citizenship, of race, of all of these things, and got this kind of very sort of official letter back that said very little. Um, but one of the things that's quite interesting in the film is that it starts with this sort of travelogue footage of this area of Bahia, and then um, moves into uh, footage from a music video that Michael Jackson shot in the neighborhood uh, for uh, They Don't Care About Us, which was, of course, a song about apartheid, a controversial song about apartheid. And um, he, so it becomes this thing where this becomes this sort of anthem that at first is kind of echoing in the background and then sort of it becomes, uh, this footage of this video becomes like sort of integrated into this thing and sort of uh, weathered in the same way so that it all is sort of this contemporary morass, mm-hmm. which is, and there's some images of sort of paraphernalia, uh, Michael Jackson paraphernalia that's for sale and stuff there, which of course is also very interesting because I mean, it is this fascinating thing. I, I was traveling abroad over the summer, the level at which Michael Jackson, especially outside the United States, it's like nothing ever happened. Right. Um, when in fact, you know, he's obviously a very weighted figure at the moment. And although his, you know, his songs, it, it is very difficult for people to let them go. And like he has, uh, he has this presence, this, uh, you know, iconic, almost like larger than life presence, like all around the world. And um, in this case, having him sing again, also this very sort of like protest oriented song. And then it sort of ends with a number of residents of uh, Pellerino, uh, which again, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, repeating in um, Portuguese the phrase, uh, they don't care about us, mm. or they really don't care about us. They don't really care about us. Uh-huh. Um, and it is this like very kind of like uh, anthemic, at this point the song has reached this sort of anthemic pitch, that it mm. is like this really kind of really moving, uh, like strange film that I, I just thought was great. Oh. Yeah. I mean, my the film that jumps out at me that I, I liked the you know, so much is Tomonari Nishikawa's new film Amusement Ride. Uh, this is something I saw, you know, in Toronto and I saw here uh, in preview. And like, I mean, so Nishikawa is someone who has been making films for, you know, last you know 15 or so years. And what he does is he shoots, he shoots on film and he, he does a variety of processes on them to make these kind of kaleidoscopic effects often. So like, you know, he'll use, I believe in the past, he's used things like, you know, certain lenses or optical printing. But what's interesting about Amusement Ride is that he shot it on, I believe, a Ferris wheel, or maybe I can't, it's hard to tell because it's you're only seeing the kind of um, the kind of uh, supporting architecture of the ride, that kind of like that 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 kind of tangle of scaffolding type stuff that you might see at the base of a roller coaster or something. So that's all you can see. And as the as you know, the ride moves, you're seeing his camera move. And what he does is he, 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 without any kind of optical effects, he frames it so perfectly that what you're seeing is a kind of a, a ready-made kaleidoscope just out of the, out of the bits of uh, wood in, in that structure. Um, and it goes on and on like that. So he's basically doing his own kind of you know, uh, aesthetic, but he's not doing it with any kind of intervening thing besides just how he's uh, framing it. And it's, it's really... Fantastic. Um, I do yeah. feel like there's cuts though where it's um, he's it's always moving upwards. Yeah, and I feel like there is a way that he's like flipping the camera. Oh, maybe he's doing that. Um, That's true. I feel like what's in one thing that I really like about his work is it's always there's always like a element, uh, especially in these last several films, where it's something very simple, but there's something 
like strange about the image you're looking at. Yeah. Like in the one that was like 10 sunrises and sunsets on a one horizon. Yeah, they're like riddles. You're trying to they're, figure out what you're seeing. You're trying to figure out seeing. what he's doing. Yeah. And like um, in that one, I know it was that he was shooting at sunrise and sunset on this bridge. So, um, and then like, uh, expo- I think double exposure or something. So it was creating this strange light effect. Yeah. And here I feel like he's doing something with the camera where you have this kind of endless scroll of the infrastructure or whatever the mechanics of this ride. Yeah. But yeah, there is, there's something about his work that I think like you get drawn into this kind of like technical question, but it's also just like very It's just beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful and mysterious and compelling. And, you know, it's the kind of work that I, this is what I go to a experimental sidebar. I want to see this, you know, this thing. I mean, he's kind of like, in a sense, a kind of classic termite artist who's just really digging away at this very specific way of making his films and just doing it extremely well and doing it you know uh, he has quite an amazing body of work so I was really happy to see see this film mm-hmm. um, it also brought up I mean this film and the uh, Adama's film kind of bring up the same issue that I thought that is happening in a lot of these works mm-hmm. which is this using not just document not just a link to documentary but also more specifically documenting using 16 millimeter which is of course if you're making a regular documentary that's kind of an absurd proposition at this point so it's interesting that it becomes again and again it's something a lot of these filmmakers are really crafting over time like what is their their own style their own hand using this medium to document the world i mean the one that sticks out to me there's two films by luke fowler that i think you know these are not major films by him i mean he's made I mean, I think Electropythagoras, as we were saying, which showed a few years ago, was to our minds just one of like, the best of the one of the most best yeah. of the 21st century, as far as I'm concerned. These are still fantastic, and they, in the recent years, he's become really interested in, you know, using the influence of Robert Beavers um, and how Robert Beavers would shoot his his films, and taking some of that inspiration and, and shooting documents like paper documents, photos. Um, and one that he has this year is called uh, Mum's Cards. Yeah. Mum's Cards. And it's his mother's own, his mother is a sociologist. It's his mother's own files. Uh, she uses this kind of intricate, old-fashioned system of file cards, which I, quite honestly, I was told to learn in school and I've never understood how all that works. But but like just she has just tons and tons of handwritten wow. file cards on sociological subjects. And you see him going through these cards, going through her notes, very close up, real macro lens, really lovely, uh, very sensuous in terms of the getting the material of the paper and the photos, uh, which is, of course, a kind of rhyme to the material of film at the same time that he's engaging with. Um, and then there's a voiceover and she's never seen. And the voiceover, uh, I guess, was recorded after he had gone into a room without her. So there's this kind of, as like you were saying, this kind of reconstitution of herself in a sense. Well, I mean, I think it actually gets to something you were saying earlier about this idea of um, the sort of community element of these types of uh, events. And it is something that I always, it's different in a way than when you're watching sort of feature films and like a main slate. I mean, it's not as if people don't have their concerns. And, you know, I'm excited to see the Costa film, which I think returns to a lot of, uh, you know, things that he's, you know, been making work about for many decades now. But uh I think because in the experimental world, people are often making multiples a year, you do sort of get this almost sort of intimate sense of like their working, uh, sort of their, how they're doing their work. Um, in the case of the Luke Fowler thing, uh, 
I'm really not a fan typically of the really like clinical, like I kind of put like a piece of paper that explains colonialism down and then like show an artifact, yeah. <laughs> uh, school of experimental filmmaking. Um, but he does it with such warmth when he's working with these documents and he's always usually doing biography yeah. with them, like kind of uh, creating uh, someone's life story through the detritus that they've left behind. And in this case, he apparently went into the room and his mother wasn't home and looked through all the stuff and really was sort of, you know, creating the story of his mom without her presence, which is uh, to have him do something like that with a figure that's so much closer to him and so much more known to him mm -hmm. than um, these other people that he's focused on, I think is something that like kind of opens up, opened up the work for me in a different way. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way because it, I thought of this as coming out of the work that begins with To the Amateur Photographer, the, this documentary mm -hmm. about a woman's uh, photography collective uh, and their archives that um, showed at Lincoln Center when it was new. But uh, now I realize that actually before that, he made a series of portraits of friends of his of their rooms without them being there. Yeah. So in a sense, he has been doing this maybe even longer than I've been thinking, hmm. uh, because this is also that. You also see her room to some extent, and you get the sense of her environment. Yeah. Um, I mean, a couple other people who I think you're returning to... It, it does feel like sort of checking in like an, on an old friend, um, the Danny and Sheila Restack film, yeah. um, which I think is actually a follow up to the earlier film um, that's called something. The earlier film. The, to <laughs> uh, an earlier film they made a couple years ago. Um, and it, it, Danny's work has always been, I think, sort of very personal and like intimate about family life, but it's really... Um, the way it sort of blossomed in this collaboration with her partner is just really like alive and like funny and intimate. And like, um, it really feels like you're watching, um, again, to get back to this maybe earlier idea of the avant-garde people who are really like living the life, yeah, uh, like living a artist's life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think Danny's work to me, I mean, this is what really made me think when I saw it is that. Danny's work has, you know, if you haven't seen it, it's broadly speaking, you could call it documentary or diary in the sense that it's it's shot with a video camera. And I think maybe this one is shot with the phone. I can, I, it's hard to tell, mm. but it, she, she began with a video camera and she'll just record daily life from very strange oblique angles so that when the shot begins, sometimes you're not really clear what you're looking at. And it's, and so she's going as much for the kind of formal properties of the shot as she is for the content or the the meaning of the shot but what happens is she kind of concatenates them in these in this long string of just little tiny moments and the way in which she kind of punctuates the rhythm of that and how she's able to express personality through it i mean she has a really beguiling like voice too yes uh as far as like documentary voices yeah. goes hers is just um I don't know. But she's really, it's a diary form that really is all her own. I mean, yeah. there is no one else that I know of that does anything similar to her work. And she's really been, again, like Nishikawa, she's been really working at this for uh, two decades now, really refining this. And this new piece is, is excellent. And it's, the earlier yeah. piece it's building off of was a strangely ordinary, this devotion. Yeah. I remembered. Oh, right. right. Um, I didn't, and I didn't see that. I'm unfamiliar with her partner's work, but it does seem like something has sort of shifted in the, in the years that they've been working together, uh, maybe, I don't know, focused or something. Yeah. I mean, huge difference to what we we're just saying about the kind of termite person who just does the same mm. really digs. Peggy Awish's new piece, 
Awash is the paragon of the person who you do not know what you're getting next. Yeah. Like if there's a new Awash film, God help you figure out. Like without <laughs> seeing it, you have no idea what you're going to see. And this thing is not, again, it looks actually the only thing this new one reminds me of is a work that actually premiered at video festival back in 2000, I think, or one she puppet, which is a famous work by Peggy where she took, um, tomb Raider and played tomb Raider and then laid a narration over it that included, you know, uh, you know, literary texts and so forth uh, about travel. Um, this one is uh, called uh, Kansas. Sorry, we're going to have to do that again. Uh, this one is called, this is not printed. This one's called Kansas Atlas. And what it is, it's, it's, it's a twin screen film, two, two screens next to each other, both, both mostly drone footage of the Kansas landscape. Mm-hmm. And, Awish, of course, is of you know Middle Eastern descent. She's made a lot of work about, I mean, She Puppet is one of those pieces, about the representation and the kind of fantasy of the Middle East in Western culture. Uh, Beirut Outtakes is another good one for that. Um, this one does that too because she's actually in Lebanon, Kansas. <laughs> and she finds an outsider art uh, place called the Garden of Eden. Um, that's this outsider artist made all these crazy sculptures and everything. And so it becomes, I mean, in a loose sense, it's an essay film, but very loose because the, the texts that are being read are, again, literary texts from various sources talking about geography and history and religion and so forth uh, with these, ama- these beautiful images. So a lot of the images are these drone shots over the landscape where you see these geographic, sorry, these kind of geometric shapes that farmland creates. Mm-hmm. And it becomes, without being as explicit as a typical documentary, the end result is it gets you to thinking about how the land has been really obliterated by human agency and uh, really what we've created these, in a sense, giant artworks that when you mm. see from above, you see the, that pattern of kind of the human hand. And one more thing she does that goes with Nishikawa is that she'll sometimes flip the image so that it creates, again, a kind of weird kaleidoscope where the pattern of the land is flipped on the other screen and suddenly you're seeing some odd abstract pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then she'll play with that over and over again. So it's a really, it's a very playful and very interesting film. And quite honestly, given the ubiquity of drone footage, it's amazing how little it's been used to interesting effect in work. I mean, uh, Ouroboros is maybe the only other film I can think of that... Um, did something interesting with the drone, but this, I think actually, this is the most interesting use of the hmm. drone I think I've seen in this kind of work, to be honest. Yeah, we had a feature lamenting the use of drone in, in documentary at least. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. I was gonna say that in, there's two films that sort of I was thinking of as you were talking about Peggy's piece. Uh, mm-hmm. One is Topography of Memory. Did you see that one? I did. That was a very Awesian film in a way. Yeah, uh, it was using CCTV footage um, to, and and this is playing. I believe this is also an interesting sort of like, where's it gonna go? Question too. That I, it's playing in the amphitheater here is more of a installation, but it was playing, I believe, in theatrical um, at wavelengths. Right. I saw it theatrically at wavelengths, and I understand why it could work as an installation. It's also very architectural. Like you're in that space in a way. But, it, but it's basically taking these various CCTV yeah. feeds and doing these kind of like uh, 360 pans. Of, hey. So it's um, looking at these CCTV footage and these sort of 360 pans of Istanbul. Um, 
on the eve of a major election um, and over it you're hearing this sort of family conversation about who they're going to vote for and the sort of impending uh, shift right in the country and um, it is this kind of eerie view of Istanbul like just like very very distant like you know security footage but it, it almost feels like it varies but a lot of it is the type of thing that like would be on um like when you're watching the news and they just have like a static shot of like the port or whatever but i'm sure it's security footage for like a variety of reasons i mean who knows why these cameras are looking exactly where they look or why they're moving at the speeds they look it's all you know obviously obviously fraught in that Uh, piece the audio is super fascinating yes because it's all about who they're gonna vote for and no spoiler alert on this, but it's so parallel to conversations. If you're American, you would have had around voting for Trump or not with family members. I'm sure if you're in India, similar conversations about Modi, Brexit, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And Brazil. And Brazil. Yeah. So yeah. it feels like, which is also touched yeah. upon in another film, The Bite, uh, yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. So it feels like it's, I don't know what to call this, but there seems to be a lot of art and literature now that is starting to do this kind of parallel autocracies kind of thing um, that trying to like bring up the parallels between what different democracies are encountering, uh, even though within those democracies, these events seem so singular, you know? And I mean, and the parallel here too is this very like intimate conversation between like family members who are disagreeing um, with this like absolutely like um the opposite of intimate footage like you're seeing like um the sort of you're basically seeing like the footage of uh like you know the most sort of uh generic yeah the most sort of generic view like the least sort of detailed or nuanced like possible view you could have of Mm -hmm. a city um where i mean it's like you know just basically the the geographical features of the city the sort of major buildings and things like that. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring a special section on the 57th New York Film Festival, including Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, Pain and Glory and Pedro Almodovar on his literary inspirations, Noah Baumbach's Merit Story, Angela Shanalek's I Was at Home But, and Cornelio Poromboyo's The Whistlers. Support independent, non-profit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. Another one, the other one I was thinking about as we were talking about both of these is Who's Afraid of Ideology, which has a very different, I think, um, relationship to the landscape um, where it is about the sort of Kurdish women's liberation movement and um, uh, building these sort of autonomous communities and the ways in which um, part of that community building is kind of like relearning very basic things about their environment and there's like this taxonomy and stuff of um sort of everything from like what the plants are like how do you how do we have this conversation that i think is actually often getting back to sort of some like basic things but uh, in other times getting into these like very sort of politically determined ways of viewing things yeah i mean i actually she also wrote an essay this is part of a longer series of project she's done and she wrote an essay i pulled out a quote because i thought it was it's kind of an interesting way to think about how do you define what's experimental or whatever because she writes uh organizing information is an inherently political act what one chooses to prioritize reduce or exclude is not simply a way of um a way of making stories it is a way of making a world um to me this kind of 
statement is very much in the tradition of someone like a Chris Marker or, or Hiron Faroki mm-hmm. or Hiroshi. She quotes Hiroki, yeah. uh, Faroki like uh, a lot in that essay. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's another thing about the avant-garde to get back to, or, or the experimental, whatever you want to call it, to get back to the personalities. Often these major figures are kind of end up determining a whole genre, like genre. Like so Faroki kind mm-hmm. of carved out an area that now many people would work in and because he kind of defined it as somehow being on the periphery it now that is it i would say the same thing about jonas mikas in the diary film mm -hmm. same thing about i don't know uh, other kinds of formats so i think that there's this even when the person isn't there like faroki's not here somehow his presence is there in the sense that he historically has has helped make this a strain of the of of of, uh kind of adventurous filmmaking i do feel like he you you mentioned leviathan But I do actually feel like in comparison was another key m- mm. moment where, Shift. yeah, where the art world documentary and like the avant-garde was all kind of coming together around a film. Yes. Because Faroki had this very end of life uh, art world moment. Yeah. Like just at the end, he was get becoming a hot thing in the art world belatedly. But um, it, it did just seem like suddenly everyone was like... Well, that's the other thing we, we the talked about. People yeah. that, you know, uh, before maybe we weren't aware. Yeah. Now we're, well, I, so I think. The awareness grew, I think, especially in a film, in a film context. And I think around that time yeah. he got represented by uh, Green Neftali Gallery in the U.S. I mean, he hmm. entered into the system in a way I don't think he, I don't think he was before. I mean, one thing we were talking about, again, as a shift from, let's say, the last decade, about a decade ago, figures would have been seen more as kind of crossovers into the art world. Like I remember, or even more the decade ago, I remember like, for example, when Views was around, uh, Views showing a film by uh, Sharon Lockhart, who at that point, you could only really see that in a gallery, it wouldn't normally show in a theater, you know? Nowadays, that kind of, I feel like what's happened in the la- now is that you don't have so much crossovers, you get these people who have emerged who really already exist in all those worlds. Like they don't cross over. They just were always both like, um, you know, Kevin Everson is a prime example of this where he begins as a gallery artist, gets really more attention as a filmmaker and and then goes back to the art world. And like, he's never really not been both. It's not like he, he's not a crossover figure in that way. Like we would think of a Sharon Lockhart at that time. I think Beatrice Gibson's another example of yeah. someone who seems to have had equal footing in both worlds. Um, for as long as I can remember. And her film is another one that I think is uh, another film game, back to what I was talking about before, that's sort of of a piece with uh, the work that she had last year. Um, and again, it's sort of exciting to see people building on like worlds that you're already kind of invested in. It's like, it's like Marvel, really. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the projections yeah. universe. Projections expanded yeah. universe. Um, I do want to mention, just because one of the things you want to go, like I said, if you want to go to projections, you definitely want, is you want to see something that you're like, what the heck was that? That's incredible. I have no idea what this is. <laughs> I know what you're going to say. I really liked uh, My Skin Luminous. Oh, I was going to say. Which I, thought, yeah. I don't think Nelly saw, I but I saw it and... It's uh, by uh, Gimino Rodriguez and Nicola Pereira. And Pereira, I believe, has been in projections before, right? I think so. Yeah. yeah. And this is not exactly... I mean, if you've seen Pereira's film, it's not exactly what you would expect from his films. Have you seen it, Nick? I have not seen this It's one, no. this really interesting kind of series of vignettes that are shot almost like moments from a narrative film that w- never happened. I mean, I'm, I'm saying that badly, actually. Let me cut that because that's okay. not really what... It's more like a series of strange vignettes involving actors at first you think this film is going to be oh no let me let me dial back because now i'm remembering the film the film opens up as if it is a fairly 
conventional documentary about a local educational initiative in Mexico. <laughs> and you think when you're watching it, you're like, oh, is this what Parade has been up to? He got hired by the government and this is some sweet little film about <laughs> kids learning. But then it starts getting stranger and stranger. And then at a certain point, there's like, you know, a boy passing out in a chamber full of incense while he's trying to take a sauna. It, it's like there's uh, there's really straight. It just becomes increasingly odd. Mm -hmm. And um, I just I'm 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 I, if you notice, I'm having difficulty describing it. But I think that's kind of the that's kind of the uh, mm -hmm. experience I had. It's an mm -hmm. odd film that takes you places you don't expect. And mm -hmm. I would I kind of don't want to spoil it. But so I'm kind of saying, yeah, go see it. See it. <laughs> yeah. Well, if we want to talk about uh, kids, kids on screen, uh, there's also Un Film Dramatique oh, yeah. uh, by Eric Baudelaire, mm -hmm. which um, I really loved. Uh, but again, an, a movie that, I, it, you know, definitely Eric Baudelaire is someone who I, I think also came from a sort of film world, art world simultaneous. Yeah, totally. And uh, but this film is in many ways, uh, you know, would fit very nicely in a documentary program. Um, mm -hmm. It does have hybrid elements, though, which is what makes it so interesting that these uh, kids that he's working with making a documentary about their lives sort of like become more and more self-aware of the process as it goes on and mm -hmm. like start to kind of begin to control their environment and uh, just become more their authorship uh, of the project kind of grows as it goes on in a way that's it's quite interesting yeah. and his relationship with them is interesting as well yeah mm -hmm. one of my favorite parts of this film early on he's asking these kids he has mm -hmm. one bo young boy i think i don't think you hear him ask it but it's, the boy seems to be answering what's a film yeah and he says a number of things but he says at one point just as like a kid he's like a film can be anything and it's like it's such a funny little like yeah moment but it's also at that moment i'm watching this i'm thinking this is exactly the core of what you go to something like projections for you want to feel that feeling of like the rules are completely um you know lifted for a moment and when you walk in the door you really don't know what you're going to get and were the kids halfway through where they start agonizing about what the film actually is yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 but a, that a film can be yeah. anything versus like you know yeah. uh organization of information being a polit inherently political act i mean yeah. those are the kind of polls you get at a mm. at a at a venue like this yeah, yeah. I, th this is one one feature i i, I caught at, at locarno and um i i also just liked how um the, their kind of awareness of what film could be or and, and the process seem to parallel their own sort of development of their own personalities and yeah. self-conscious yeah. so you have this kind of neat parallel of their of what they were doing with the art and also just how they were coming into their own a little bit themselves um i thought that was interesting too I mean, we can also talk about what's not in the program in terms of what's not individual people, I would say, because that could be due to any number of reasons. Like I said, this um, the festival, isolating the festival outside of the whole cinematic environment of New York is, is, is a dangerous proposition because everyone knows that things are showing here all the time. Mm -hmm. But um, I noticed, for example, in projections used to have a good strain of work that would be kind of like in the post-internet, post-hitosterol video essay form that's very internet-y and related to you know web browsing. And that was a very strong component for a few years. And it's interesting, I saw nothing in that strain this year. Was there anything? Well, I mean, there's certain things that are about, I feel like surveillance has kind of taken over, um, yeah. but uh, there mm. is culture capture, uh, oh, Adam yeah, and culture Zach Cleals, yeah. um, and Jackson Paulus's film, which yeah. is, I really like, that's another one that's playing in the amphitheater, but it's um, 
it is dealing with sort of a very sort of internet way of looking at the world. That's true. Yeah. Although it doesn't, it, it does do that. And I think it does fit in with that. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't do the kind of screen capture aesthetic that no. I think was very big for at least a couple of years. Well, I was going to say- you would see at these kind of venues a lot. And now it seems to have kind of died down. That's why mm. I was kind of like a little reticent to say that or- uh, Francis Scott's piece, which I think are both kind of about like 3D printing and sort yes. of, it's almost like the reverse. It's about like putting the world into the computer in well, both cases, like yeah. uh, rather than um, sort of how the computer represents the world. It's like almost like recreating the world. Yeah. I mean, in, um, in Scott's, she has this kind of, she kind of overlays both 3D animation with 60 millimeter footage. And sometimes I believe the 60 millimeter footage is itself of other image kind of electronic images and things. So it's, there's lots of different weird layers of uh, kind of dissonance uh, yeah. uh, in terms of media quality. In some ways it, it was like a almost <laughs> reminded me of like a 3D printing version of uh, the Renee movie, uh, Chant de Styrene. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like not formally similar at all, but you're getting like kind of this history of like this plastic. And then meanwhile, it, it becomes about the sort of film representing itself in this like 3D printed yeah. way. Um, I mean, but it, yeah, yeah, that was what I thought of. It entered my mind during it. I yeah. don't know how close it actually is to the, the, <laughs> the I Renee think... movie. Before we do our shout outs to, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing Heimat is a space and time, which I believe is only playing once, but um, at it's longer than the Irishman. Um, <laughs> it's 218 minutes and um, it's supposed to be incredible um, I'm hoping to get a chance to see it on Sunday um, but that is definitely one you should try and check out in the theater because mm -hmm. it's so long you can't do it at home right right um, or you I mean I can't uh, maybe Only other the most advanced viewers yeah. can do it at home. <laughs> I don't know what kind of viewing setup you guys have out there, unless, but uh, <laughs> unless you have like you can actually shackle yourself to your laptop somehow. Yeah, or shackle your laptop, hide your laptop in a safe for four hours. <laughs> um, uh, two films that I would like to shout out um, before we end: "This Action Lies" by James N. Keenitz Wilkins. I think mm -hmm. is a really um, he's like uh, really making. <laughs> some of the funniest films in experimental cinema. Uh, yeah. But he he does it in a way, um, he has these kind of like extremely deadpan monologues where he's often like talking about sort of, in this case, everything from um, every slogan that Dunkin' Donuts has had in the last decade to what it's like to be an artist and a new father and the like sort of nature of like the image and the, economics of filmmaking and the materiality of the image you're seeing mm -hmm. um, in a way that sort of just like flows it the way that he like draws these connections I think is like really masterful and in this case he's um, sort of you're looking at this styrofoam cup of coffee while he's doing it that's sort of rotating you're seeing kind of every angle mm -hmm. on the cup um, and it's, it's just a really, um, he's pretty singular voice and, um, whenever his, he's also extremely prolific and, um, whenever his work is showing, it's sort of must see. Yeah. I and think. he is another one of those filmmakers. You don't quite know what you'll get at one yeah. of his films. And he's, this he's one, also another person who he's shown at independent film festivals, like yeah. new directors, new films mm -hmm. or BAM cinema fest. He's shown mm -hmm. at in galleries. He's shown, he's had radio plays that just go online. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really um, all over the place. Yeah. I mean, this piece I really like because it talks so much about the history of Dunkin' Donuts and I'm from the town where Dunkin' Donuts <laughs> began. I, yeah. And so I was, I was 
enraptured. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, the film, I, another film I'd like to like to shout out is Simon Liu, uh, Signal Eight. Uh, yeah. He is someone that I just we were just talking. We think this is the first time he's been in the program. He's a local filmmaker and a member of uh, the team that runs a artist-run film lab called Negative Land uh, in Ridgewood and. It's a beautiful film. I mean, it's shot in Hong Kong on 16. It it's it has certain Wong Kar Wai kind of tributes in terms of the pop music it chooses. Um, it's it's just a you know it's one of the again yeah. one of those films you want to see in one of these programs that's just stunningly beautiful use of 16 millimeter poetically rendered. Yeah, and I think it's another another one of these films you know where there is this undercurrent that he is shooting in Hong Kong over the summer where there is like this sort of political unrest yes. and you're seeing a city symphony knowing sort of what's going on underneath mm-hmm. it, I think is, um, you know, I think with a lot of these films, like having that context uh, often brings an extra dimension to the film. But yeah. it, it I, you don't need it, bleak. but yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just a beautiful film, but I, I do think that that's. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Fair. Yeah. All right. Well, that yeah, plenty. Uh, I'm sure we can continue continue with. with we basically more. told you guys to see everything. <laughs> we, yeah, see everything. <laughs> see everything. Shorter, shorter version. Mm-hmm. See everything. Yeah. Um, but that was uh, terrific. Thank you both mm-hmm. so much for taking time to go through the programs. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring a special section on the 57th New York Film Festival, including Bong Joon Ho's Parasite, Noah Baumbach's Merit Story, and Cornelio Porumboyo's The Whistlers. Support independent nonprofit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. You've been listening to the Film Comment podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comment. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle.